0: I guess what i'll kind of call out here is it's hard to productize generative AI. Yeah. it's not a trivial matter right and and i think a lot of us monte carlo included started from you know from the block and tackle stuff let's take stuff that generative ai is pretty good at you know and maybe code generation is something that Gen AI does fairly well out of the box and let's plug it into our applications where we need to perform those tasks right and and we'll use the the foundation models that uh, OpenAI and others have kindly built for us through their APIs, and and boom, you know, you have generative AI in production.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee with Coalesce, a monthly podcast about all things data and the trends and technology transforming our industry. I'm Armand Petrosian, CEO of Coalesce, and here with me is my co-founder and CTO, Satish Jayanti. Together, we'll be your host for the next hour. Hello, everybody. I'm super excited to have a great guest here, Mr. Leor. I think, Kent, you've been on here numerous times in the past, so maybe a quick introduction from you, Kent, uh, and then our our centerpiece guest here with Lior, we'll let you fill in as well. And then... Uh, me and Satish, but Kent, why don't you go first? You want to just give everybody a quick background and intro on your end?
2: Sure, thank for uh, the folks don't know me. I'm Kent Graziano, I'm known as the Data Warrior. I have been in the uh, data space for multiple decades—something like 30 or 40 years—I can't remember anymore. Uh, i had the pleasure of working with Armand and Satish for over a decade through uh, uh, numerous other companies. Um, Specialize in uh, data architecture, data warehousing, transformations, um, data vault in particular. I was the uh, chief technical evangelist at Snowflake for six years and uh, then uh, retired and had people like Armand saying, well, no, you can't retire, dude. Uh, We need you as an advisor. So I spend uh, most of my time these days as a uh, uh, strategic advisor for uh, basically a a lot of folks in the Snowflake ecosystem. And uh, I do uh, have my own podcast that I do called the True Data Ops Podcast. And uh, Lior's uh, uh, better half was on that. That's awesome. Uh, and, and the last year, I got to talk to her about uh, Monte Carlo and all things in that in that range. So that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> April, helpful, Kent. And you mentioned it, the
1: better half. I oftentimes call to teach my better half as far as the co-founder Uh, conversation goes. But Lior, this is actually your better half. You're you're married to Bar, the CEO, the co-founder. You co-founded the company together. Uh, Can you give a quick background yourself? And also just for all the people that are tuning in right now, I would love to hear a founding story. Just talk us through how you both decided to start Monte Carlo, start the company. Uh, Anything you'd like to share on your end would would be awesome to hear for me personally, and I think everybody else that's on as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's so so fun to be with with such a great group of people in data. And uh, yeah, I I have a bar as my better half, both at home and at work. Uh, So It makes things easy. My background, I'm a software engineer by training. And by trade, I'm probably some mix of software engineer, data engineer, data scientist. I'm kind of a I've kind of become this jack of all trades because I've always kind of worked in startups and 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 was excited about uh, about things that you can do with data. I started working on machine learning projects. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm worried about disclosing how long ago, but but years. <laughs> I the story that started Monte Carlo actually started started with my previous startup, which was in the cybersecurity space, and we basically used. Data and analytics to to help companies manage and control their their data, especially their sensitive data. We got acquired at some point by a larger cybersecurity firm called Barracuda, which is where I spent I think over three years. Led the engineering team there, and one of the things that I spent the most time on was was actually building machine learning models so that we can help our customers identify types of fraud that are. Mm-hmm difficult to identify with rule based systems, which is what the product became extremely successful. And, and I think it was the fastest growing product that Barracuda had since, since its inception. We it got quite a bit of, of adoption and helped, I think, millions of people. The flip side of that is that, you know, when, when I was thinking about the times that we disappointed our customers, it was primarily when our data was wrong. Right? When something in our pipelines that feed our models and or feed the features that, that, that are consumed by those models broke. And, and in a way, that was far more dominant in creating issues and, and, and frustrations for our customers than, you know, what my software engineer self would consider kind of traditional downtime, right? Like your, your code is broken or your, your infrastructure isn't running fast enough or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and and when you think about this you realize that oh you know and, on the on the software engineering side of the house you know this methodology of how to make things reliable has existed for a while right we we generally call it devops today right. uh, but it's something that people have been practicing for for decades essentially right and there's a very good understanding of of how you do this what is the process and what are the tools that you need in order to do that, right? Starting from, you know, there's there's hundreds of different tools, but starting from a CI, CD system and all the way up to observability and, and kind of monitoring things in production, all of that to a large extent did not exist on the data side of the house, right? All the stuff that we built, you know, in terms of data pipelines and, 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 and machine learning models that, that run real time had almost none of that. And even worse, it wasn't even clear how to do this. Like what is the process by which you create reliable data and reliable models? And that's kind of a little bit where my inspiration from Monte Carlo came from. Bar, independently, was working more on the analytics side of the world. She was leading operations in 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 an enterprise SaaS company that basically helped customer success teams use data to act on 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 churn and upsells and things like that were you were you two
1: together at the time or no did you meet later after this
0: oh yeah no we were married we, we've been married okay. for yeah, way so before is- monte carlo existed yeah. yeah
1: yeah got it okay
0: cool uh the, the marriage came first and, <laughs> and and what happened was Var left her job and i was helping her you know after hours like over the you know weekends and nights she was kind of thinking about starting company and and you know i'll keep her story shorter but basically she ran into similar a similar set of challenges in the analytics world right so i had unreliable machine learning models she had unreliable dashboards that caused customer frustra- frustration yeah. et cetera and it kind of clicked for us that you know i, I was helping her I- I- again as, as a as a as a as a supporting uh husband and and and, and bar kind of thought it was oh it, it was interesting she started kind of researching the the space and trying to understand whether we just suck at our jobs or <laughs> whether it's something that a lot of people experience and and she did find out that that this is a, a common problem that everybody's everybody's that's building with data is experiencing pretty much and it was kind of like a cue oh it might be interesting to go out and and solve this because this is a very important problem and. You know the use of data the use of machine learning in production is is was definitely on the rise uh, which still holds true today and i wasn't actually planning to join forces and work with her but a mutual friend of ours that he actually was working at snowflake at the time still works there today and and uh, borrow you know went to consult with him and you know get feedback about what she was working on and he basically said oh you know leora has the perfect background he worked on fraud detection in, in data and and data analytics and he's cheap labor so uh, why don't you get it to uh,
1: yeah it doesn't get it doesn't get cheaper than free i would imagine you weren't charging her for this kind of it
0: wasn't
2: like a family run business
0: <laughs> i was not the most i ever got was maybe i don't know help with the dishes or something like that um, Yeah. Nice. So, so me, cheap labor w- was asked to, to join the team and Bar uh, w- was, was very clever. She got me to, she, she would go out there and talk to presumably customers, like future customers right. of this, trying to, to, to research the market, understand how people are tackling this and, you know, what the level of pain is and Sarah, and she cleverly invited me to join a few of those. And then, you know, it was pretty evident that if we were able to solve this problem, Yeah, this would be very meaningful. Like, this is something that people, you know, lose sleep over. And this is something that 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 would make for a a fantastic company that could have a lot of impact. And that was, you know, and and those are the type of opportunities that you only get a handful of times in your career. Maybe only once I can pass up and, and, and decided to join her. Full time, which I did several months later, and and we started Monte Carlo to basically help companies deal with those sleepless nights and, and frustrated stakeholders. And and, uh, and ended up actually at the end of the day, Monte Carlo takes a lot of the ideas that we all learned from you know Bar working on the analytics side and trying to operationalize it, and and me kind of you know having that DevOps discipline we applied a lot of those ideas in, again, both firming the the methodology of how to create reliable data products. And obviously we were also excited to, to build the technology that supports it. And at the end of the day, Monte Carlo is is an observability tool. It's probably the equivalent of a Datadog or a new Relic. And, you know, in the same way they use those to, to review the you know the reliability of, of of applications, of infrastructure, of of security, increasingly. You know, Monte Carlo is how you do that with in the data stack, right? With Snowflake and Looker and a million other tools that uh, the data people have adopted, and and that's what we've been doing since. It's been an exciting journey so far. That's amazing!
1: Wow! Yeah, sounds like a sounds like a great journey for sure. I think, uh, and we're still
0: married, by the way. Still married. Uh, yeah, guys, that's good. That's good. we're still <laughs> married.
1: <laughs> that's most important. Hopefully this is a unifying thing that you've gone through together and you've clearly had a lot of success. So congrats on that so far. Uh, we certainly know how it goes, at least to be co-founders, both Satish and I, obviously co-founders here at Coalesce. But this sounds like a totally different ball game. You're married to the person. It's amazing. I got plenty more questions uh, around all that, but that's such a good background and Definitely familiar with the phase of not taking a paycheck, starting the company. Like both Satish and I did this for for no no money the first year, year and a half, I think it was. Satish when we started Coalesce. Uh, but anyways, I'm CEO of the company. Satish, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself, and then let me jump into a couple of questions I got for Leo and Kent.
3: Sure. Um, hey guys, uh, this is Satish Jayanti, CTO, co-founder, Coalesce. Uh, my background is, you know, basically you know, before Arma and I started working together, I was on the other side uh, actually making those problems uh, <laughs> that, that uh, Leo you were um, alluding to, which is building pipelines, but then you have data issues, but essentially being uh, on the engineering side, you know, managing and uh, data teams, uh, solving business problems for large enterprises. That was yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. Cool. So you certainly experienced
1: some of the issues that Monte Carlo aims to solve. I'm, I'm curious, Lior, were there any specific use cases, especially because from my understanding, Monte Carlo was either the first or one of the first pure play data observability products in the market, right? As the modern data stack expanded, uh, you saw all these different solutions appear for specific issues as data has become democratized and just so much more common. And so is there, specific use cases? You mentioned fraud detection was one that you were exposed to firsthand. Was that like the initial beachhead use case that you were looking at when you approached starting the company? Or like, what were the first couple of things where you're like, okay, we definitely need to solve this right out of the gates?
0: Yeah, great question. Putting aside my, my speculations back then from, you know, yes. for, for five years ago, I I think probably like the biggest surprise to me starting Monte Carlo and then kind of living through it was that it is not very use case specific, right? Like I thought a lot of our customers were going to be essentially tech companies using data for, you know, fraud detection and and other, you know, places where data matters. What we learned, though, is quite incredible, is that every single industry you can think about is is using data today and using data in a meaningful way. And so our, our customers ended up being from, and, and this is from the from the early days even. So of course, all the all the prime suspects are there, right? Like you'll find tech companies, you'll find e-commerce, financial tech companies, right? Like all these are there, but you will also find a lot of manufacturing and a lot of an education, and pretty much any sector of the economy that you could possibly imagine yes. is using data in a meaningful way. Ken, you probably saw that. No yeah,
2: yeah, no, I'm just thinking through all the companies I've worked for over the years and really the the whole what we now call observability, been a like you said, a problem just in the analytics space, which is where you know where Barr came out of, is there was always those questions about can I trust the data in this dashboard or in this chart. When, you know, how come I'm getting two different customer accounts from these two different managers out of our data warehouse, right? was like, where's that data coming from? And trying to prove to the CEO, you know, somebody having to go through piles and piles of hand-coded ETL code to go, well, how did we end up there over in this Mart? And we got a different answer over in that Mart. Yeah. And it, it is every industry. I mean, it's starting in the mid-90s with data warehousing really starting to boom back then. You know, I I saw that thing and said, you know, this idea of business intelligence. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, at the time, some of us thought it was an oxymoron. Granted, um, (laughs) you know, can we actually have intelligence in business? But, you know, everybody needed that data. And and you could see anybody who's going to be successful, regardless of the industry, like you said, they need to use the data effectively. But you get down to the data governance and, you know, the reliability, the auditability, the overall trust factor of that data the more important the data became to a company the more more important all those things became right
0: it's Mm -hmm. like we've
2: got to be able to trust that data and now that we're moving into ai and gen ai and you know your experience in machine learning it's even more important it's like how do you trust the results of a black box gen ai thing Mm -hmm. if you can't trust the data that went into it right
1: Right. that that makes complete sense. We talk about this all the time, especially with like the black box in the AI world, the foundation you're feeding it with is so critical real quick. And maybe this is for everybody here, but when you, when we think about data observability, some of this feels like it is on the fringes of data quality as well. Cause we talk about making sure that that quality is high. I guess we just for the audience here like how would you decipher or compare the two or is it completely a separate thing or do you see observability is related to quality what what are your thoughts there and also it looks like you know the as people are tuning in here if you have any questions feel free to ask for anybody uh, that's on the webcast right now
0: but yeah could you can you help decipher that yeah to me and, and there's obviously different different ideas about this but the way i view it is Data observability is an extension of data quality, right? Like I think a lot, like a lot of data quality, you know, both the concepts and the the tooling around it Mm -hmm. came from this viewpoint of, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something once, very manually, right? I'm going to take data and transform and, and ingest it, clean it, transform it, and you know, put it in the binder. That's kind of where the the methodology came from. And so it's very much oriented towards, you know, point of ingestion or like very, very specific parts of the pipeline. And it's very focused on exclusively the, the data and the rows. And that's critical, right? That's building block. You can't get a reliable dashboard if the numbers are broken or, you know, if the data that was ingested has values that it shouldn't be there, right? So that's absolutely a critical thing. And and you know it's a big part of data observability, a big part of what we do today. I think where data observability took it a step further was, hey, look, we're not putting data in binders anymore. Right. And we're not doing this like pool once a quarter that we analyze and scrutinize and and have a person look at and manually transform. Right. right. Uh, we're not doing that anymore. We're, you know, in a modern company, there's, there could be hundreds and thousands of people that are staring dashboards every day to do their jobs. There's models right. that are making decisions on behalf of the business every single day, right? Like, or billions of, th- billions of times a day sometimes, right? That idea no longer works, right? You have to think about, you know, how do you scale this thing? How do you make sure the entire system, you know, all the way, you know, from the, from the data that gets ingested and not through typically dozens and hundreds of steps of transformation, all the way down to the end product be it a dashboard or a model or whatnot Mm -hmm. how do you make sure this whole thing works reliably right and one part of it is definitely making sure that values are correct in a sense or meet certain you know business rules but you really have to start thinking about like how every single step of the way of this long pipeline how reliable is it how healthy is it and you have to think about it several dimensions. Like these, this, these systems are pretty complicated. They have, you know, both the data that's flowing in, right? Like there's this external input that you're taking from either, you know, another team in your own company or, or sometimes from an external source, that can change unexpectedly in ways that you don't anticipate. You have the the um, the code that you're using to transform all that data, right? And you're usually again applying at least several dozens of steps of of calculation, right? And that can change, right? You're hiring people to build those pipelines, to make those pipelines better. They're going to change the code. The code is going to have unintended consequence, right? Like it just happens. And then the third piece, of course, is infrastructure, right? Like all this thing is running, you know, in a variety of tools, right? Mm -hmm. OS is one of them, right? And all these tools kind of work and combine together in sometimes mysterious ways to, (laughs) to create the end product. And you have to understand how reliably and how healthy all these things are are working and how they're combining to create the final result. And that's probably like the biggest you know, philosophical difference in terms of observability, like for data observability and where it extends data quality. In practice, this means that, you know, a data observability solution will give you tools that allow you to look at, you know, all of the tables that you have, not just at the point of ingestion or consumption, but... All of the different steps of the pipeline and it will try to measure health at every single step and it will try to give you meaningful alerts and it will even more important it will give you meaningful context about those alerts like okay there's a problem here the data is wrong one way or another where is this data coming from right what happened there did someone change the code there did someone or the, the 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 data that you ingest change in some in some way that you didn't expect? Did the infrastructure that was running all of this have a certain issue, performance or errors or otherwise? All these things are combined together into this single pane of glass that gives you visibility into data quality and other things that are important for the- So
2: so this is really, I'll say, automating the the overall monitoring of what's happening in the data ecosystem, right? There's no way to scale without doing the automation. Right. Right.
0: Right. Right. Nice. And, and that's exactly where, you know, data quality, quote unquote, struggled in the past, right? Yeah. R- uh, Running I mean, one
2: SQL script occasionally, like before you move something to production. Okay. So the code works today on the data we're looking at today. But like you said, something changes in a source system or a rule changes. You, somebody builds a pipeline a little different. And now you've got data flowing into tables that, you know, Are you, is it really still right?
0: Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and these things break, right? Like they do. Uh, it's it's the nature of 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 of, of complex systems, right?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's helpful. I love that. And I like the way you know, just at a high level, comparing it to something like DataDog as far as software engineering goes, but appropriating that to the data pipelines as people go through building them and managing them. Can any questions from you that you're curious about? For well,
2: you know it's the you know it's the the age of, of ai here and the you know, lior's got the the background in machine learning and all that was really kind of curious as to you know what are you seeing with your customer base today are they are people really getting into yeah. gen ai and machine learning you know are they just dipping their toes in and um, you know how many are getting past the sort of well let's try it out with chat gpt sort of thing and experiments mm-hmm. and really looking at putting stuff into production and and using your product as a way of monitoring those pipelines to make sure that everything's good.
0: Yeah. Great question. It's been really hard not to hear about generative AI in the last, I've been trying sometimes to not hear about it. You still do. Right. And and, and so I think the kind of like you called out, I want to say that, you know, 80 or 90% of teams that you talk to have plans around it and have taken at least some steps to to experiment with it, to understand it and to do things with it. As you also call out, there's a, there's a pretty broad range of maturities around that, where some teams have gotten all the way up to, you know, a customer facing production app that you, that leverages Gen AI. And, and a lot of companies are still at the phases of figuring out what to, to even do with this and how, and we see it across the board. And I guess what I'll kind of call out here is, it's hard to productize generative AI, yeah. it's not a trivial matter. Right. And, and I think a lot of us Monte Carlo included started, you know, from the block and tackle stuff, let's take stuff that generative AI is pretty good at, you know, and maybe code generation is something that gen AI does fairly well out of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. let's plug it into our applications where we need to perform those tasks. Right. Um, and, and we'll use the, the foundation models that uh, OpenAI and others have kindly built for us through their APIs, and and boom, you know, you have generative AI in production, and that is probably the most common, you know, success we've seen. And there's a good number of of companies that have been able to to do that. Monte Carlo is one of them, by the way. Like we do use generative AI in our product, a number of use cases, and it's gotten good good adoption and good feedback. And can you uh, can you talk about that a little bit? So like.
1: As you, you mentioned, it's hard to, it's difficult to productize. Like when you think about Monte uh, Carlo as a product, leveraging Gen AI to impact your customers in some different ways. Like what are some of the use cases that you saw were low hanging fruit or opportunities to to leverage LLMs when it comes to, to your value proposition?
0: So in our world, and I'm, I'm also happy to share examples outside of, of data observability, but in our world, Uh, Code generation is probably big, right? Like, we do help our customers deal with code in various ways, right? Especially, specifically, SQL, most commonly. But, you know, we do help our customers process logs from their data warehouse, for example. Makes Um, sense. Our customers do use logs to, sorry, do use SQL queries to basically define quality rules about their you know, the data that they have. And so we've found different ways to help them create that code, debug it, optimize it, things like that. And so all of that is is built into Monte Carlo. And and that those have been some of the first, you know, Use first pacers. implementations, yeah, that 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 work pretty well. And we've seen similar patterns with our customers, specifically around usually code generation and or summarization is also something that works pretty well so it,
1: how accurate is it usually like we we've gone through internal pfcs that coalesce as well and like for example like creating a join or something using gen ai for doing something like that what we found is it gets you pretty close it's not 100 accurate is that similar to the experience you've had as well with
0: when it yeah absolutely to, it's I'm a good way right.
1: all okay.
3: right
2: right is, and, isn't and, that, that what snowflake called theirs
3: isn't that the, the so, Snowflake copilot? Yeah. Copilot. co-pilot from it, from, there's from a, yeah, yeah,
2: there's like
1: Cortex. So we'll be doing a demo with Doug and Snowflake later this month. Uh that's for like a different theme. We've got demos with Doug, super fun. If you haven't tuned into one of those, definitely check it out. Doug's amazing. But Snowflake is going to be coming on to talk through Cortex, which is a lot of their gen AI copilot functionality. But a similar theme. So so it sounds like for you, Leo, that that is that has been like the first use case that you saw as an opportunity for, and that and that's helped the customers like help customers at least cut down on some of the time that they would have, maybe brings down the skill skill set required a bit for anybody.
0: It saves a ton of time, right even for a for an experienced engineer uh, writing yeah. SQL is is tedious, right? I think where we saw though the most you know the biggest jump in functionality is when we started so one thing is getting the user experience right and the right user experience for generative ai is not not surprisingly but an interactive experience right if you just try try to throw answers at people they will get limited uh value because of what you mentioned like how you know how close is it um does it need a refinement tuning does it need more context i think the other part that really made this so much better for our customers to start getting a lot more more success with it is when we started incorporating proprietary proprietary information into the process, right? And and you can think about it as a very, in our case, a simple version of RAG, of Retrieval Assisted Generation, right? But when we started augmenting the information that the user provides about what they wanna do with information that we already have about the, the the in this particular case the, the user's data ecosystem starting right. from simple things like what tables do they even have and what columns right. do those tables have and what do we know right. about right, right? and then you can get more advanced the results are so much better and more and, and more more personalized in a sense and it also creates a more differentiated experience if you will compared Absolutely. to on a JAT GPT right because if we just use the APIs as they are. I mean, it, it maybe saves you a couple of seconds of going to another tab, but we wouldn't be offering anything that is really better than going to uh, chatgpt.com or whatever the URL is, if forget. get. And so where it really became nice for our customers is when we started incorporating our proprietary information, not proprietary, but information that we have about the customer into that experience, into the model.
1: I was going to say Satish talks about this pretty often too. Like it feels like it's a race to be able to train the model itself, and like that's really where the value is versus just some like public API. Well, <laughs> and it, it's it about the, the metadata, or, right?
0: Or or rag, right? And and personally, I think rag is is the easier thing to do in a sense. But yeah, you, I I, I think the point is correct. And Satish, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But like. It's it's really a hard or the, the the secret sauce here is the data that you have. However, you choose to incorporate it into the model into the application, RAG or fine tuning or you know train Good your done. own uh, foundation model if you really want to. It's hard, but you you kind of have to do that to make generative AI effective. Otherwise, you're nothing but a wrapper for GPT. <laughs> yeah. Right,
1: Satish, anything any thoughts on that? Just like I know you obviously built some of the world's largest most complex data warehouses you've probably seen these problems over and over again uh, as far as it relates to gen
3: AI data observability
1: yeah training models um,
3: yeah one thing uh, you, know, uh, you know implementing uh, the augmentation piece is probably the easiest of all the solutions out there right. to improve and add value uh, as opposed to the generic uh, API that's available so that's for sure because the training is, while everybody says training and fine-tuning and training and fine-tuning is not that easy, um, so that's, that's that. Uh, but as far as the observability goes, I have a question for you, Leo. So, yes, um, um, You know, when we implemented data quality in my past life, uh, you know, just like we discussed, hey, you, you write in some SQL to test something either at the beginning of the pipeline, in the middle of the pipeline, or at the end of the pipeline. And then we say, hey, here's my first rule, here's my second rule, third rule. And once you get to a dozen rules, then you're kind of getting to a point where you're losing control of what is happening and you don't have a proper structure. So <clears throat> my question to you is if a, these companies are getting started, let's say, on data observability, what would be some of the things that they need to be uh, you know, thinking about from a best practices or How do they start? I mean, obviously, you don't want to boil the ocean, but what's the best way to kind of get started with observability for these?
0: With observability, great question, and and very relevant to generative AI as well. I think the way to do it is, in my opinion, several things. First part is leverage automation, right? Like you can absolutely go ahead and write a lot of rules, like you called out. That gets really complicated really quickly because it's hard to anticipate all the things that are going to break. It's hard to manage the configuration and the thresholds and whatnot. And, and it can create a lot of noise as a result that would then alert fatigue people and, and, and make the whole initiative fail. And so the first thing is to leverage automation, right? It's a lot of the stuff that we built into Monte Carlo is this ability to basically automatically collect a lot of health metrics about the data starting at the pipeline level and or table level, things right. like you know how recently the table was updated or you know how many rows it has, does it kind of does it make sense for it to have as many rows as it does today? And then going sometimes many levels deeper into the data itself. You know, again starting from the basic stuff like you know how many nulls you might have in a particular field or how many unique values and then going down into as sophisticated of a metric as you want to measure the health of your particular, you know, data set in your particular business. And we have built a lot of tools to make that scalable, right? Whether it's the ability to collect a lot of those metrics, you know, with a single click or a single line of configuration, like allows you to, to do a lot of these metrics across a lot of tables at once, whether it's machine learning models that help set thresholds in a way that may not be perfect or exactly what a a human with a lot of context would have, but they're very good sanity checks. And they will put a lot of confidence into the pipeline without having human goes and and manually sets up a lot of rules. So I I think that's the first piece of it. And and that's the, the, the second piece of it is rules have a very important place, right? Like, and our customers build a lot of those various forms of rules. The trick is to also create the, the operational discipline around it, I think, right? Making mm-hmm. sure that it's clear, A, what needs to be monitored, right? Mapping, hey, you know, there, there are these critical products, data products that I'm trying to make reliable, right? Whether it's the dashboard that the CEO uses or, you know, the table that feeds into my latest and greatest generative AI application, but I, I need to understand what it, what it is that needs to be reliable, what the SLAs are. Mm-hmm. I need to understand what feeds into that, what are the breaking points. I need to understand how to monitor for those issues and I need to make sure these things go to the right people, right? Because I could send all of, the, all of my alerts to one single channel and hope that something happens. Right. What happens is that everybody ignores the channel, right? What mm-hmm. I mean, you need yep, to do so is make sure... It goes to the right person at the right time for them to act on it. And so you need the, you know, both the the organizational discipline and the tooling again to to make sure all this is possible and attack it in kind of a methodical and, and measurable way, right? That's the other part. If you're a small team, it may not be a, a big issue, but like some of our customers are, you know, have thousands of people building data set up things with right. data, really thousands. And it gets out of hand very quickly, like way before you get to thousands of of developers. And so you you need to start measuring like, well, how reliable are different, you know, beta products and how rigorous are different teams and in, in 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 managing reliability and doing the operational stuff. And, and you need the visibility into that in order to drive accountability and and and, and eventually trust, right? So those are probably like the three key elements I'd say in terms of, of actually rolling it out in a in, in a sizable. See, so you, you got
2: to have the right people and processes agreed upon, in addition to having the technology, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it's yeah. it's it becomes chaos. And it I, always I think comes about, back to this,
0: doesn't it? I know people yeah. processes.
2: <laughs> you know, because it, you like you said, you got to have agreement. Otherwise, otherwise, it's you know people are not going to be. Like you said they get yeah. overloaded by the alerts well if they're getting over by the alerts yeah. then we picked either the wrong people or the wrong process or both in yeah. how we're going to take advantage of all of this information right it's like you, the technology you guys have done that right you got the technology yeah. now it's like how do we deploy it properly and then we get talking about the the culture the data culture Right. the uh, data literacy you know are are we getting it to the right people that understand what that alert even means right
1: uh, yeah <laughs> hey I, there's a quick question in the comment section james Daly here kind of ties into where we're going to close it out we've got a few minutes left so i just want to make sure we got this question asked and i remember you james we worked together in a past life so love seeing you on here but The question is around the merging of proprietary information to augment AI can be a tricky topic for some organizations. Customers need safeguards that their proprietary information is not used to train models shared with the general public. Interested to hear how Monte Carlo manages that fear. Any thoughts there? And like, do we see this as a theme coming up in 2024 for, for companies as they express that towards vendors like ourselves?
0: Yeah, such a great question. First of all, I'll admit, like Monte Carlo doesn't necessarily manage this directly, and so we're, right, we're right. usually not. The, but I, but I do have a point of view on that. And I think, as you call out, James, to adopt generative AI with proprietary data in an enterprise, there's a bunch of requirements, right? That that goes beyond the like, oh, a demo that I'm going to post on X or Twitter or whatever it's called. You need you you need to start thinking about like what data goes where, right? Which is what, what you're you're pointing out around privacy, compliance, data security, things like that. You, you, need, to, you need to think about these things and it's tricky. Uh, you need to think about scale, right? Is it going to, you know, it's one thing for me to build a demo app that works on my computer, but like how do I do that in a way that serves my customers, which could be many and they might not be talking to me or in a tightly controlled environment. And you need to think about trust, right? Like how do you make this thing you know produce the right results and 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 that ties into data quality and data observability and, and some of the things we discussed today to answer your question specifically about security but the same but I, I i argue the same argument would apply to to the other two this is a place where this partially makes me say that rag is probably the architecture of choice it is not only easier to implement from a technical standpoint but it also very naturally lends itself to all of these questions, right? Go ahead and try your model. Like there is uh, literally, I'm not aware of any way you can control who gets what data, right? Like right. you can then block the model from talking to certain people, talking to certain people. But but whoever gets access to the model gets access to all the data that was fed into it, essentially, plus some hallucinations. But that's a different story. In a RAG model, you can actually control that much more tightly, right? Like we've solved the, the, the issues around data privacy in the database world, right? We've been doing it for a while. We have a lot of good constructs there.
3: Mm-hmm. Snowflake
0: has a lot of good controls, you know, other solutions too. And so you can actually, if you go down the RAG route, and RAG, I can actually solve a lot of the problems that we want to solve with generative AI, you can actually control security and privacy very well with tooling nice. that already exists today, right? It's not like me talking about some futuristic capabilities. You can actually make sure that the person that is using the app gets access to exactly the data set that they should be getting access to according to their role or user ID or you know whatever it is. And that is a very effective way to do that. If you're going into the fine tuning and training world, which which has some merit of obviously in a lot of use cases. Then that's a whole other ball game, right? That's about you know managing different models for different people, and that that can be really really hard to do at scale. For example, like you know if you have millions of users, some some of our customers do, uh, or tens of millions. You, well, you can't maintain a model for you, or it's very very difficult to maintain a model that yeah. is custom trained and custom built for every single customer. Like you kind of have to do it with RAG, and you and you can use the security and privacy controls that have been created around databases to really accomplish that same objective with, with the general. Yeah.
3: Basically it, because, help reinforce. Because, it like yeah, because techni- uh, typically they use a vector database or something to hold this rag you know, information. And that has the, all the database permissions and policies that you can use. Most of the people are familiar with that type of security mechanisms anyways. So. Yeah.
0: Yep
1: cool uh well we're a little bit past time i could stay on this all day we are it's been awesome having you as a guest kent as well it's always a pleasure thanks everybody for hopping in and uh, i'm looking forward to the next one of these but it's uh, it's been awesome having you on both of you we are kent thank you so much and thanks everybody for the great Happy questions here. and uh for, for jumping on with us